Good to see everybody today. Uh, we are going to um, look at one verse this morning, but I want to uh, get us thinking about um, this in terms of uh, how we generally think of this verse, how it's used, how it's often applied uh, before we read it. So I want you to think about whether or not you have ever doubted God's goodness, that God is good. And think about as a, uh, when you were not a Christian, um, did you ever doubt the goodness of God? And what are, what are some of the things that we hear those uh, who are not Christians? How do they talk about God um, and what do, they, what do they try to bring to our attention to show us that God is, in fact, not good? Okay, starving kids in wherever, Rwanda, <laughs> pain and suffering, right? Did you? Well, just in general, how can a loving God allow things to happen that we see happening? Sure, how can God be good when we see pain and suffering and war and famine and uh, all of these things, Right. We hear, we hear these things often. Anytime some major tragedy occurs, uh, someone is going to uh, come uh, to uh, remind us that God couldn't possibly be good. Just look at what's going on around us. In fact, one of the, um, one of the leading voices for atheism today has written a book called God is Not Good, and uh, this is one of his primary arguments. Um, but what does it mean for us to say that God is good? What does it mean when we say God is good? What are we talking about? His character, good? Okay. Sure. Good, that anything that God does is right, and it's right because he does it, right? That anything God says or does is right because it is him who is doing it. Good. What else? Okay. God is just, and that ties into him being good, right? What else? Okay. Yep. He cannot sin, and he is not evil. And that's where some of the tension comes in, right? Because we say God is sovereign and yet we see these things happen, so we struggle with how all of that works itself out, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, good. Yeah, our, our perception of good is very different from what God's is, Right? And one of the difficulties here is what we think good really is, right? So when uh, a lot of times when we say God is good um, or God does uh, and gives us good things, um, what are we generally talking about? Right, yeah, so if we have, uh, if we're healthy, we have a warm house and nice meals and a bed to sleep in and uh, everything is going well, uh, we'll say, God is good, right? And this is our perception a lot of times, that this is what God is. He's the provider of these things, and he is. But really what we're talking about when we say God is good is his uh, moral excellency. 
Um, his heart is true, his love is pure, and there is nothing, um, uh, there's nothing greater uh, in terms of God's love and purity and holiness. He is all pure and all holy and all kind and all good. So the fullness of these things is found in God. Uh, he gives it in abundance. Look at, um, you know, what uh, David, all throughout the Psalms, is praising God for his goodness and for his kindness. In Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he's talking about the goodness and kindness of God. So if we're honest, though, we would have to admit that this is challenging to us at times, that God is good. Um, and so what often happens is when we start to doubt that or when we en- endure something that doesn't seem like it's good, um, we want to look at the verse we're going to look at today and try to have some kind of uh, reminder of God's goodness, which is not a bad thing. But oftentimes we use this verse in the wrong way. It's misconstrued. It's misunderstood. And so in the end, it's misapplied. It's misused. Um, any guesses as to what verse I'm talking about? Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Okay, that that could be it. Any ideas? There you go. Romans eight twenty eight. Let's read that together. Go to Romans eight. Romans 8 and verse 28. Someone read that for us. Great. So there it is. God works all things together for good. It seems pretty straightforward, but we need to ask what that means. How do we interpret that and understand it? Uh, Because Here's the thing, when we lose our job or when our marriage is struggling or when our kids get into legal trouble or we have some incurable disease or your best friend dies in a car accident or your house burns to the ground, everything in our humanity wants to fight against this notion that there's actually uh, good in the midst of it all. Uh, That we can find some goodness in what God is up to. The other option is to say God's not involved at all, uh, but when we do that, we're denying God's absolute sovereignty over all things. And so what you often hear people do is just attribute these things to Satan or to the universe or whatever, uh, but then we take God out of the equation altogether. We're trying to get him off the hook. God doesn't get himself off the hook in the Bible. He doesn't come to his own rescue and say, when when you perceive that bad things are happening, I'm not involved. We never see anything like that. In fact, we see many instances that we will look at in a little bit where we would look at them in the moment and say, this is awful, this is terrible, there's nothing good here. And all the while, we see the bigger picture that God is, in fact, at work in the midst of them. So we struggle 
We struggle with these things. Um, what happens to a husband when his wife and three children are riding down the road and they get hit by a drunk driver and all four of them die? At that point in time, how often does Romans 8.28 sound to him like an unkept promise or uh, even worse, a flat-out lie? But here's why we can draw that conclusion so easily sometimes. Because it may not actually be rightly understanding what the Apostle Paul is saying here. So as always, we need to think context. First of all, who is Paul writing to in Romans? Okay, the Roman who? Yeah, the church, right? To the, to the Christians, right? That's very, very important. We have to remember who he's writing to. And these are Christians. They're believers. They're ones who've trusted in Christ for their salvation. They've been given the gift of the indwelling spirit. Uh, This becomes more obvious in this verse as we begin to dissect it a little bit. But uh, thematically, what is, uh, you hopefully are familiar with Romans chapter 8. What is Paul setting up the readers for here in verse 8? What has been going on throughout uh, chapter 8 Uh, as we get to verse 28. What's the theme of this uh, chapter? Okay. Yeah. Good. We're walking in life according to the Spirit. Um, We're receiving an inheritance from God. In the midst of all that, the Spirit is at work indwelling us, interceding on our behalf. Uh, It's the work of the Spirit in the midst of all these things. So um, all of this begins to work to put our suffering in proper perspective. Uh, Paul says that the suffering we endure in this life pales in comparison to the glory that is yet to be revealed uh, for those who are in Christ. Um, And as we long for that time to arrive, uh, when Christ returns, both body and soul are delivered from the fallen flesh and will eventually be glorified, but in this time, we will endure suffering. In fact, earlier in this chapter, Paul says that we, along with all of creation, uh, groan for the restoration of what's broken. We are longing for that, and yet, until that day comes... Um, Paul tells us we have to uh, continue to live in it. So what do we have to do in the midst of suffering and trial and temptation and struggle? What do we have to do? What answer does he give us in this chapter? What do we do in the midst of our suffering? What should we do? <laughs> yeah, worship. We rely, uh, more tangibly, we rely upon the Holy Spirit, right? Um, And how do we rely upon the Spirit? What does that even look like? That sounds nice, but what is that? How does that work itself out? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. 
The Spirit and the Word working together, we use God's Word to remind us of His promises, to be encouraged by what God has said He will do, has done, is doing, right? We need God's Word for the reliance upon the Spirit. If we don't have God's Word, if it's not regularly a part of our lives, then we have no means by which we can rely upon the Spirit and continue to grow and to be changed. Um, Now, during times, he even promises when we have no idea even how to pray, and surely we've all been in those circumstances. We've been stricken with such grief and pain and hardship or suffering, or we have endured great temptation and trial. We don't even know how to pray. What promise does Paul give us in those instances? That the Spirit is interceding on our behalf. Sometimes we go before the Lord and all we can seem to do is just make noises. <laughs> it don't really mean anything. But the Lord has promised us that even in those times that the Spirit knows our heart and is interceding on our behalf. Um, but even when we don't know how to pray, even though we're suffering, even though we're enduring trial, even though we're constantly facing temptation, there is one thing that we do know. There's something that we can rely on, and that is that for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, all things work together for good. I hope you can see the contrast here. There's a lot that we don't know, but there are a lot of things that we do know, and that is that all things work together for good. So the first question is, for whom? For whom do all things work together for good? For Christians. It's not for everyone here, right? We see that in this very verse. It's very specific. What does Paul say? He says this is a promise for Christians only. It is for those who love God. Uh, It's a very uh, specific way. Uh, He uses a very specific way of saying this. He said, uh, for those who love God, for those who are called, or we can say uh, the called to salvation according to his purposes. So if you are in Christ and you love God, all things are working together for your good. Who are the called? Well, this tells us right away that not everybody can claim this promise, right? Um, Because not everyone loves God. Not everyone is called according to his purposes. Uh, So Christians uh, need to be very careful in when we utilize this verse even to try and encourage other people, right? Um, I'm not doing my neighbor a whole lot of good when I try to tell them God's working all things together for good when they're not even in Christ. Because it, it may very well be that these things are all working uh, to prove even greater their hardness toward God. Because even in the midst of trial and suffering and hardship, they refuse to repent. And God is uh, showing very evidently uh, of their hardness toward him. It doesn't work for their good in the end. It works to their very destruction. Uh, The second question is this. What does it mean to say that all things work together for good? What does that even mean? Now, we have an idea of what that means. What are we in the midst of uh, someone, uh, uh, our spouse dies uh, just tragically, 
completely unexpected, and all of a sudden, we are faced with all of this, and I want to believe God works all things together for good. Uh, what are my assumptions about what that means? What does that look like? Kenny? Okay, good. So I have some idea of there's a hope that awaits me, that in the end, I'm going to be able to look at all of this and say, something is going to happen through this that is going to be uh, making it worth the suffering and the trial I'm enduring. Mark? God's hands are in all things. Mm-hmm. Good. So any situation that could happen, there could be a thousand different things that God's up to in the midst of a circumstance that we have no idea about. God could be up to so many different things when we ourselves endure suffering that we may never find out about until we get to heaven. God did these things as a result of that circumstance. Yeah. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Great. Excellent. I, I think uh, Steve's right on um, to where we want to go with this. Look at, look at the very next verse in verse 29. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what is the good that is worked out in the midst of all of our trials and suffering? That we're conformed into the image of Jesus, right? God doesn't always seem like, and I'll, I'll the first to admit it, it does not seem in the midst of our trials, that God is working things together for the good of the person who's enduring it. It doesn't feel that way. And the Bible is very honest about that, right? The entire book of Job is about Job saying, what in the world is going on? He handled it wrongly. His friends handled it wrongly. And in the end, God showed him. He didn't tell him, he didn't, show him why he had to endure all of these things, but he did show him in the end that his promise is sure, that he will work things together for good. Now, the, the problem is that we often think that the good that Job received is the same good that we will receive. What's the good that Job received in the end of all of his suffering? Yeah, restoration of all his property and riches and all of these sorts of things. That's not necessarily what God's promising, yeah. Right, exactly. Exactly. 
Not that Job would look at all of it and say, well, I got all this, so it makes up for the loss, right? There's still pain and heartache to endure in the midst of these things. Um, and this is, this is our life. It's full of tragedy, even for Christians. People die, loved ones. People get cancer. We've heard many already this morning. Jobs are lost. Children get hurt. Um, if these things didn't happen, everyone would want to be a Christian, right? Uh, everyone would look at our situation in life and say, these people never endure suffering or pain or hardship. Uh, maybe something great is going on with them that I need to take part in. Um, but that's not God's uh, intention. That's not God's purpose. His purpose is not to show that he, uh, he does things for us and so they should come and get those things. Because then what is our hope in? Yeah, our hope is in these things. Our hope is in the creature or the things that, the God, that God has provided instead of uh, the uh, creator himself. So this is the, the answer to this, the ultimate good for which God is weaving and working together uh, for his people is the good of making us to be more like Christ. Or as Paul puts it, being conformed to the image of his son. So let's take it another step further. What does that mean? What does that look like? To be conformed to the image of the son. What is that? Okay, growth and holiness. Yeah, our being sanctified, Lee. Okay, Christ is increasing while I am decreasing, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sure, that's good. That we would know more of um, exactly what it is um, and, uh, and being able to hold on more tightly to the truth of God's promise. That I'm understanding it more and more because I'm walking in it more and more and I'm growing in my understanding of who God is and who I am and how much greater my need for Christ is in the midst of all of it. Um, We're so often to apply a fleshly definition to a question like this. What does it look like in the end that all good would happen? Uh, I lost my job. Well, it means that I'm going to get a better job that pays more and has better benefits. Is that always going to be the case? No. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, you know, as Kenny pointed out with Job, is the end result for Job that all of his children come back to life after they've been killed? No. So we have to be very careful not to apply this definition that comes from the fleshly desire as opposed to thinking exactly what uh, is meant by being conformed to the image of the Son. Most of the time we don't really think that, you know, perfection comes through the fire. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, just like the gold of the cross. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. Remember, we talked uh, last week, we, we kind of uh, talked about this as well, this idea that the suffering we endure is uh, intended ultimately for our good. 
because it strips us of ourselves. We're laid bare to say, God, in fact, does give me a lot more than I can handle. Why? So that in the end, my only hope, my only salvation, my only way forward is in him alone. And until I get that and understand that and begin to walk in that, I still am at a distance from God. I'm still not trusting him fully and completely, knowing that anything that comes in my life that is of any value whatsoever is because of my reliance upon him. And so until I can continue to be conformed to the place where in the midst of suffering, I can say, I have no hope, I have no, <laughs> nothing outside of Christ, and actually walk in that, then um, I, I still need this. I still need to endure this. And honestly, for all of us, until we die, until we are glorified, um, we will always have this need because we will never get to the place where we are fully, completely relying on God and his promise. Go ahead, Sam. Good. That's exactly right. We have, no, we have no measure, right? How do I say anything is good when I don't endure anything that is, is, is bad, any suffering, any trial? I have no. And so what, is my, uh, what happens in terms of my outlook of, of my uh, dependence on God? Why do I need God? Everything is fine. Why do you think Jesus says it is nearly impossible for a rich man to go to heaven? Because all of his life seems to be okay. Even when a rich man is suffering, he has the means to do whatever he needs to do by, uh, uh, by common grace to be able to fix the suffering, to at least endure it and numb the pain, right? So this is the mystery, though. Bad things happen, and God works it for good. And we have a lot of examples of that in Scripture. Um, I think Joseph is a great example of all of it. Sold into slavery by his brothers, uh, pretending that he was left for dead. Uh, he went through all these circumstances. He was in prison, and even there he was, uh, he was uh, forgotten about. He was lied about and thrown back into prison. And then in the end, you know, over years, this is not like, you know, in a week, he kind of said, wow, that was quite a roller coaster. No, this is years and years of his life. His whole life is spent going through these circumstances where he says, every time I take one step forward, it's 10 steps back. But in the end, 
He's able to look at all of it. The last chapter of Genesis, his brothers come to him, they bow down before him, and they are scared to death that he's going to have them all killed. And he says, you men, everything you did for evil, he doesn't let them off the hook, but God meant it for good. God worked all things together for the good of Joseph, that he would be in the place he was, even through all of those circumstances. Right. The thought probably just occurred to him at that moment. You know, he had this big aha moment, you know, where he was able to forgive his brothers and all that. Yeah. But he had gone all those years through all those trials not Exactly. And yet, we have all indication from Scripture that he remained faithful, trusting in the Lord and his promises. One of the very few people in the Bible we see going through life without all kinds of sin attached to. Now, certainly, I'm not saying he was sinless by any means, but he didn't have any major issues that the Bible raises. He was a faithful man. He trusted the Lord. And in the end, we see that he recognized God's work in the midst of it. Let me give us another example, and this one is most pertinent to all of us. Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, we're going to look at 27 and 28. I'll give you the context. Peter and John are forbidden by the Sanhedrin, uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, from, uh, from going and preaching or teaching anything pertaining to Jesus. Uh, so they went back to the disciples. They reported everything that they went through. They talked about this trial they endured. And then they come together and they begin to pray. And beginning in verse 28, they say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So how does this show us what Paul means in Romans 8, 28? Okay, God has ordained that our suffering would be what it is. That's maybe hard to swallow. He ordained, he orchestrated every aspect of Christ's movement to the cross. Even at the last moment, the 11th hour, Jesus said, is there any other way? Take this cup from me, however, not my will, but yours be done. Why was he able to say that? Because he knew in the end the good that was to come was far greater than the pain he had to endure. What was the good? And the writer of Hebrews tells us he endured all of it for the joy that was set before him. That's when we start to understand Romans 8.28. I walk through all of it knowing that there's a joy set before me that makes everything else pale in comparison. Remember, the Apostle Paul goes through all these things he's endured in this life. I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've been left for dead, and on and on he goes through all this. And then he says, all of this is a light momentary affliction compared to the everlasting glory uh, of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's an astounding statement. But that's when we are able 
to get to where we are beginning to think rightly about this. My good in the end might not be that I have great riches, I get my job back, um, or my uh, loved ones come back to life. That, that's, that's not what's being promised here. What's being promised is that I'm being conformed all the more to the image of the Son, and in the end, I can look at all that I've done and all that I've gone through in my life and say, God is good because I'm walking in greater holiness. I know him more. I'm more aware of myself in light of who he is. I have a greater understanding of my need for Christ and my dependence on Christ. And I have a joy that is set before me that when this life is gone, I enter into life everlasting with no pain and no suffering and no sin. That's our hope. Well, I was going to give us another example, uh, but we're out of time. Um, But all of this is what it means to say that God works all things together for good. It's for Christians. And it may not happen right here and right now, right away. It may be the entirety of our lives. And even at the end of our lives, we may not be laying on our deathbed, looking at circumstances and saying, I know exactly why God did that. But in time, eventually, and perhaps even waiting until we get to see the world as God sees it, that we will finally understand Uh, But we can trust that he is the one who created. He sees the beginning from the end. This is all part of his big plan, and we can trust in his ultimate goodness. So even if suffering, even if tragedy comes to our door, we know that his plan is tailor-made for each and every one of us, that we would seek him more, that we'd be conformed more, and that we would walk in greater holiness with him. So life... uh, Life for us in this world is not always going to feel comfortable or safe. But when we're being conformed to this image of the Son, there's no greater security in knowing that we can rest in Him completely and totally apart from anything this world can offer because it all pales in comparison. Any uh, final thoughts before we close? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. So we could look at something that is clearly an evil circumstance. It's wrong, it's bad, it's evil, and uh, we can get a wrong perspective. Well, God's going to work it for good, and therefore we get to this place where we kind of misconstrue and kind of forget about the fact that it is, in fact, evil. There are evil things that happen. The crucifixion of Christ was an evil deed. It was uh, the most wicked, evil deed in the world, and yet God worked it for good. But in that instance, in that moment, they weren't looking at it and saying, this is wonderful. In fact, we saw recently as we worked through Luke uh, how all of the disciples responded to it. So I I agree completely. We need to be careful. We need to call what is evil, evil, and what is good, good, and trust in the midst of it. God's at work. I don't know how. I don't know where, um, but I know he is, right? 
Good. Well, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll close before worship. Father, thanks again for our time together to, uh, to look to your word and to be reminded of your great promises. We're thankful, Lord, that as your people, we have a great hope, a great assurance that we can rest in, knowing that you are at work for your people to bring about the greatest good, and that is that we would all be conformed to the image of your dear Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to hope in the joy that is set before us, to walk faithfully and joyfully with our Savior, with our Lord, and with our greatest friend, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.